November 21st, 2019. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Poke Runyon. And tonight we review Tobias Churton's Aleister Crowley in India. This is another in a series of books by Churton covering portions of Crowley's life and work. We have already reviewed his The Beast in Berlin, and we will certainly get to last year's Aleister Crowley in America. But Crowley's Indian adventures should probably have been the first in the series, and I personally found this book to be fascinating. In its pages, I rediscovered Crowley and relived the excitement of his early magical experiences, along with big game hunting and mountain climbing adventures. Churton had access to many records and archives not available to previous writers. We have a more cruelly favorable version of the infamous Kanchenjunga tragedy than has been previously reported. The primary theme of this book is magical yoga or yoga for magic. We start with Crowley and Bennett in Ceylon studying Theravada Buddhism together and then on to Crowley's discovering and adapting the Gnostic Tantric system of uh, Sabhapati Swami. So, if you'd like to return to the thrilling days of yesteryear, then join us and sit down, shut up, and get out with Aleister Crowley. Okay, first I want to make a correction. When I first posted the abstract for this program, I got the mountains mixed up. Crowley's first expedition in 1902 was K2, Chogori, which was a success as far up as his team ascended. The second expedition in 1905, an attempted ascent of, of Kanchenjunga, ended in tragedy, which we will discuss in due course. Well, having made that correction, I will make a complaint about the book. It needs a timeline. It is very hard to place all these events and adventures in proper sequence. That said, I will praise Churton for reintroducing me to the genius and glamour of Aleister Crowley. Certainly, I had read all this before but not in this detail and not in such a well-researched and well-compiled format. The book is a joy to read and an inspiration to contemplate. Tobias Shurton's book covers Crowley's life and work from 1901 to 1910 with references to later projects and developments begun during that decade when so much of his philosophy was inspired and formulated. Churton keeps to his theme which can be described as Crowley in India and India in Crowley. Therefore, even though Liberal, the Book of the Law, was received in 1904, Churton sidesteps coverage of this revelation as redundant to other works in the series. His main interest in this book is Crowley's integration of yoga into his system of magic. The same applies to the vision and the voice, you know, later on to the book of the law, too. That uh, I'm sure he's covered that elsewhere. Churton starts with an account of Helena Blavatsky's theosophy movement in Ceylon in India, giving her credit for inspiring Crowley. 
Churton even suggests that Crowley considered himself Blavatsky's successor. Crowley's mentor, Alan Bennett, had followed Blavatsky's path to Ceylon, Sri Lanka, and became a Theravada Buddhist. Crowley joined him in 1901, and they experimented with yoga and drugs together. Crowley observed that the Ceylon natives had grafted their aboriginal shamanic practices and deities into the Theravada system and had added a canon of rules and disciplines not in keeping with Buddha's original teachings. And the same thing can be applied to Mahayana Buddhism in Tibet. You know, they they uh, grafted all the old shamanic uh, deities and, and and including some of the Hindu <laughs> deities into, uh, into Tibetan Buddhism. At the time, Crowley considered pure Buddhism to be a scientific religion. He carried this concept back to England and continued to call himself a Buddhist for years. After visiting the Taj Mahal, Crowley met a magician named Eliah Bucks, who taught him a Trotacom method for acquiring hypnotic power. Bucks was an astrologer and a geomancer. He also taught Crowley a method of geomancy using electromagicum dice on strings. Now, this is similar to the method we developed in 1970 using animal huckles and fluoride crystals. But recently, one of our members serving in Iraq with the Yazidis reports that their their use of a similar method. So, apparently, there's nothing new under the sun. I'm going to read that this section on, on this geomancy uh, on page 130. Hang on. Yeah, this is fascinating. He obtained the mothers, not the points, drawn in the sand or on paper by throwing little brass dice, four on a string, each side of which had one of the four possibilities of arranging points. From two to four in number and two lines, one combination on each on each face, he had two such strings, and by putting them together, one obtained four figures, every possible variety being represented. He then proceeded in the ordinary way known to Westerners, though he gave different names to the figures, and attributed different qualities, though usually uh, rather rather sympathetic. Uh, Puer, for example, he attributed to Saturn above. I have spoken of the dice as brass, and that is what they look like. But he told me that they were composed of electromagicum, as described by Paracelsus, prepared correctly by mixing the seven metals during the conjunctions of their corresponding planets. Oh, boy, you know, uh, it, it's so obvious, the more we get into this, so obvious how much interchange there has been between uh, between magicians in, in India and, and magicians in the West. And this has been going on since the, since the Middle Ages. Now, before the K2 adventure, that's Chogori, Crowley returned to England and Scotland, taking up residence at his Boleskine estate on Loch Ness. Now, recently, there was a fire there. I don't know whether it burned to the ground, but uh, I, you know, I hope it was saved. There, he romanced and wed Rose Kelly, 
who would give him a daughter named Lilith. Before setting out for K2, Crowley entertained the Swiss doctor, Guglia Armand, who would accompany him on the expedition. And as a practical joke, Crowley disguised a ram as a monstrous beast, which he called the Hagus, which, of course, is a Scottish dinner entree made from sheep's entrails. <laughs> it's supposed to be terrible, but if you go to Scotland, you have to eat it. <laughs> he and the doctor pursued this beast through a driving rain, and Crowley finally brought it down with his elephant gun. And the doctor got the ram's skull as a souvenir. In the spring of 1902, Crowley set out on K2, on the K2 Chogori expedition. Now, this went rather well until bad weather forced them to descend. Now, Churton provides really good photos from both the mountain expeditions from the collection of the Swiss doctor, Guillemard. Now, Crowley set out for the east again with Rose and Little Lilith along. They decided to walk across China. Rose held up well, but Lilith did not. Crowley took ship for Japan and sent his family back to England. And little Lilith died of typhoid, and Rose began her descent into alcoholism. Crowley finally returned, and he had to put his wife in what we would now call rehab. And he left her there. He returned to India and reconnected with Bennett. Resuming his yoga studies and practice, he discovered the Gnostic Tantric system of Swami Samhapati. Now, Samhapati was raised in a Christian family and received a Christian education. He rebelled against it, and he studied Vedanta, the Upanishads, Patanjali, and Buddhism. He created a Tantric system on Western Gnostic principles that made it golden dawn friendly and very attractive to Crowley, who adopted it in his book HHH and eventually published some of it in Magic and Theory and Practice and in the Equinox, which we'll read in a moment. The system did relate to the GD's middle pillar exercise, but still used the Woodruff arrangement for the chakras. Let us consult Churton's description of Sabadee's system. To persons familiar with Simonian and Sethian Gnostic intricacies of the 2nd and 3rd centuries, albeit distorted by patricidic authors Hippolytus and Tertullian, Samhapati's system bears a familiar ring. The mediator's consciousness is to flow with the prana that runs up and down the occult body, rather like the Gnostic Sophia moving up and down the tree that extends from the divine pleroma above to the physical body below to restore pneumatic union, Gnostic resurrection. The process also has a topological sexual subtext, both for Samhapati and the ancient Gnostics. This implication would not be lost on Aleister Crowley, who, as Keith Cantu observes, was particularly interested in Samhapati's rich visual meditations on the spinal cord as a phallus lingam, and the cranial vault as a yoni, which Crowley published in a modified form as an instruction for his students. There's a footnote on that. 
And it said in Crowley's HHH, the SSS chapter in the Equinox, Samhati's subtle psychology is situated in the 12 tantric chakras and four transcendent states, which in part may explain Crowley's willingness to entertain notions of additional chakras in the commonly known system of seven or six plus one, as usually found in Western New Age systems of the chakras and the fellow pattern laid out by Charles Ledbetter and Sir John Woodruff. That's Arthur Avalon. Now, before we pull up the equinox here and read SSS, which I think we should at this point, you know, to get a full understanding of this thing, let me point out that the Woodruff system It doesn't go in the Western order. The middle pillar, of course, does. Now, this is the third chapter of Liber HHH from the Equinox. This is volume one, number five. Be seated in thine asana, preferably the thunderbolt. It is essential that the spine be vertical. In this practice, the cavity of the brain is the yoni. The spinal cord is the lingam. Concentrate thy thought of adoration in the brain. Now begin to awake the spine in this manner. Concentrate thy thought of thyself in the base of the spine and move it gradually up a little at a time. By this means thou wilt become conscious of the spine, feeling each vertebrae is a separate entity. This must be achieved most fully and perfectly before the further practice is begun. Next, adore the brain as before, but figure to thyself its content as infinite. Deem it to be the womb of Isis or the body of Nuit. Next, identify thyself with the base of the spine as before, but figure to thyself its energy as infinite. Deem it to be the phallus of Osiris or the being of Hadith. These two concentrations, four and five, may be pushed to the point of samadhi. Yet lose not control of the will. Let not samadhi be thy master therein. Now then, being conscious both of the brain and the spine, and unconscious of all else, do thou imagine the hunger of the one for the other the emptiness of the brain, the ache of the spine, even as the emptiness of space and the aimlessness of matter. And if thou hast experience of the Eucharist in both kinds, it shall aid thee in the imagination herein. Let this agony grow until it be insupportable, resisting thy will every temptation not until thine whole body is bathed in sweat, or it may be in sweat of blood, and until a cry of intolerable anguish is forced from thy closed lips shalt thou proceed. Now let a current of light, deep azure flecked with scarlet, pass up and down the spine. Striking as it were upon thyself, thou art coiled at the base as the serpent, and let this be exceeding slow and subtle, and though it be accomplished 
with pleasure resist, and though it be accompanied by pain resisted. This shalt thou continue until thou art exhausted, never relaxing the control, until thou canst perform this one section. During the whole hour proceed not, and withdraw from the meditation by an act of will, passing into gentle pranayama, and meditating on Harpocrates, the silent and virginal god. Then at last, being well fitted in body and mind, fixed in peace, beneath a favorable heaven of stars at night, in calm and warm weather, mayest thou quicken the movement of the light until it be taken up by the brain and the spine independently of thy will. If in this hour thou shouldst die, it is not written, Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord, Yea, blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. Oof, boy. Well, that's what Crowley got from Sampapati. Churton recounts an incident where Crowley and Rose were briefly involved with a scandalous British mother-daughter pair at a hotel in Ceylon. Now, Crowley was apparently still romantically in love and very much resented the attentions of these two outrageous hussies. Now, given his later attractions to such women, we cannot help but wonder what the real story behind this was. This is kind of a mystery. These two, this mother and daughter team, they were really scandalous and, and outrageous and flouncing around like brazen hussies. And, and Crowley was Crowley was being very, very Victorian. For It was very unusual for Crowley to, to be so upset by this, except, of course, he was trying to be a you know, romantic husband, and they were apparently trying to you know, get him involved in something. Anyway, it, it, it's interesting. Well, another strange incident preceded the Kanchenjunga expedition. Now, you know, Crowley left his wife to go on the second mountain expedition, you know. And Crowley met a young man in Port Said. And apparently he wanted to delay the expedition so he could enjoy a gay tryst with this uh, young man. Now, of course, this may have soured... Eckenstein is the leader of the expedition who was going to meet Crowley up under the mountain. Now he was the leader of the team, and he pulled out of the out of the project. Now I don't know whether he pulled out of it because it doesn't say that he pulled out of it because of Crowley's wanting to delay for a whole year just so he could float in a sailboat on the down the Nile on with, with his catamite or whatever. But uh, anyway, Eckenstein pulled out. Now this left Crowley as the leader of the team. And Crowley had already put about 7,000 pounds into this expedition, and uh, he had to go ahead and get into it. So uh, Crowley proceeded to the staging area, and he hired local porters and an Italian caterer, Italian restaurateur, to handle the commissariat duties. Now, he linked up with Dr. Uh, Gugliamad and Alexis Pache, a Swiss Army officer, and they started up the mountain. Now, almost from the start, they had problems. The other members of the team resented Crowley's leadership position. Although they had signed articles with him as the uh, the expedition's commander, but they accused him of abusing the porters and mishandling the funds. 
of course, according to Crowley, it was the other way around. Uh, this Italian restaurateur that they had hired was, uh, according to Crowley, he was mistreating the porters and, and stealing money and everything else. In other words, it, it was the team members, and Pache, uh, Guillemard, uh, and, and Raymond, and whatever, they're, the other team members, they they all thought Crowley was the, the one with the malfeasance, and, and Crowley blamed everybody else. Finally, at their fourth camp, at Camp 4, at 21,000 feet up the mountain, they decided to quit the project and return to base camp. Curly didn't, they did. This was at sunset, so they would be going down in the dark. Now, Crowley ordered against it, saying they should wait until morning if they insisted on going down. Dr. Guliamard tore up his contract and resigned, or it could be called a mutiny. They signed articles with Crowley in this, and he was the commander of this expedition. And he told them not to go down there. The route that they wanted to take was dangerous. And he told them, he said, well, if you want to go, wait till morning. But they wouldn't do that, and they wanted to go right at sunset. Now, Pache set out to go with Glamard and on this route down the glacier that Crowley considered dangerous. Crowley told Pache... You'll be dead in 10 minutes. But Pache went anyway. Crowley was wrong. Pache lasted for a full 20 minutes. Pache and one of the porters, actually, it was, it was more than one. Four people died in this thing. They were roped together. According to Crowley, being roped together was, was one of the reasons why the four of them fell off. Crowley didn't handle the situation very well. After they left... To descend, he stripped to his, his long johns and crawled in his sleeping bag, and he was sipping tea in his sleeping bag when they called for, for rescue, and he ignored them. He made matters worse for himself by telegraphing a spiteful and callous account of the affair, which clouded his public reputation for the rest of his life. Now... I said that Churton presented a, a more favorable account of this because nowhere have I ever read until now that this actually was a mutiny, that this business of Goulomard actually tearing up his contract. But, you know, still that doesn't change the fact that Crowley was still, and even though they did that, that Crowley was still the leader of the expedition. He was in charge. Churton recounts that after Kachunjunga, Crowley suffered from periodic asthma attacks associated with a lifelong anxiety from which he never recovered. Well, this tends to confirm what many of us have long suspected, and that is if Crowley ever had a soul, he lost it on that mountain. And even with his faults and his sexual proclivities, Crowley still thought of himself as a man of honor. And after Kachanjunga, neither he nor his public could entertain that illusion. That's not what Churton writes. That's what I'm saying. Let's don't attribute that to Churton. That's my opinion. The remaining chapters of the book deal with his promoting and teaching his system of magic combined with yoga. He did attempt to resume his marriage with Rose, and they had a second daughter, Lola. But Rose descended from alcoholism into dementia, and they were divorced in 1910. Now, the impression I get from this book is that Aleister Crowley did his best and most creative work in these early years 
and laid the foundation for the rest of his life's work. His visionary masterpiece, The Vision and the Voice, was completed in 1909. Now, these early years before World War I were his best and his most creative. Again, I want to thank Tobias Churton for taking us on a wonderful excursion back into the early days of our favorite wizard, Aleister Crowley. Now, one of the other things about this book that I did not mention in that review is that Churton selects wonderful selections of Aleister Crowley's early poetry because Crowley, you know, went over there to India and wrote poetry based on Greek mythology. <laughs> he wrote Orpheus and, and, the, and the Argonauts, and he, and he, uh, he, and he produced a, a great deal of beautiful poetry, and Churton reproduces a lot of this poetry, and it's really, really beautiful. And I think, I'll, I think we've got some time left. I think I'll read some of this poetry. This one is uh, from The Ascension Day. Existence being sorrow, the cause of it desire. A merry tune I borrow to light upon the lyre. If death destroy me quite, then I cannot lament it. I've lived, kept life alight, and damned if I repent it. Let me die in a ditch, damnably drunk, or lipping a punk, or in bed with a bitch. I was ever a hog, muck. I am one with it. Let me die like a dog. Die and be done with it. <laughs> well, yeah, that that's one of them. Let's find something a little bit more pleasant than that one. Which of his sayings prove the true? Lightning be scrawled athwart the blue. I say not which in hearts are right, are treasured but what after ages engrave in history's iron pages. This is the one word of our Lord. I bring not peace, I bring a sword. In this, the history of the West, bears him out well. How stands the rest? One third a century life in pain, he lives, he dies, he lives again, and rises to eternal rest of bliss with saints and endless rain leaving the world to centuries torn, to every agony and scorn, and every wickedness and shame, taking their refuge in his name. I must obey my mind's own laws, accept its limits, seek its cause. My meat may be your poison, I hope to convert you by and by. Never I cannot trace the chain that brought us here, shall part again, our lives perchance for I, I bring my hand down on this table thing, and that commotion widens thus, and shakes the nerves of Sirius. To calculate one hour's result, I find surpassing difficult. One year's effect, one moment's cause, one mind could estimate such laws. Who then much more may act aright, judged by an in ten century sight? Yet I believe whatever we do is best for me and best for you, and best for all. I line no brow with wrinkles mediating now. 
I want to find a uh, a little essay on yoga, the essentials. This is from the earlier part of the book. Crowley would summarize what Alan and experience had taught him of yoga in his confessions. This account stands today as a first-rate introduction to the essence of the subject, that for so many have become little more than an exotic twist on conventional exercise. On the other hand, Crowley was one of the very first to demystify the subject completely and make it accessible to Westerners in all walks of life. He reduced the essential principles of yoga to one, how to stop thinking. The theory regards the mind as made for dealing symbolically with impressions, and its nature is to take such symbols for reality. Thus, conscious thought is regarded as false insofar as it inhibits reality perception. Thus, yoga practices are means to slow down and then curtail thought process. Crowley was proud to observe that it was he and not the yogins themselves who had realized this on account of the fact that he was not concerned with religious doctrines and ethics he believed to had obscured the scientific essence of the practice. And in his dealings with Buddhism also, this assumption that moral considerations were inhibiting accretions to a science of mind is frequently asserted. Crowley claims to have reached the conclusion from observation of comparative religion so that, for example, when a Catholic repeats Ave Maria, the rhythm inhibits the thinking process, resulting in an ecstatic vision of Mary. Similar methods may bring visions of Vishnu or whatever superior being the practitioner desires access to. Crowley observed that the mechanics of what was essentially psychological phenomenon transcend the language used, whereas repetition over years in religious contexts made the language and sectarian terminology the transcending feature, leading to the erroneous conclusion that the experience proved the religious belief system rather than the method's own virtue. Now, that's kind of a mouthful, but let, let, let me try to interpret that. What he's actually saying here is that uh, you can repeat a, uh, a mantra over and over and over and over again, and you want a God to appear, and if you keep doing it long enough, and you can, the God will appear. You'll uh, produce a hallucination which, which looks like what you, what you think the God ought to look like. You can do that, but that is not, according to Crowley, is, 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 is a misuse of the system. Because, yeah, well, of course, as we know with Theravada Buddhism and also Zen Buddhism, you calm the mind and you, and you, don't, you don't think of anything. The idea is, is complete non-focused bliss. And I actually, I, having, having done that myself, you know, I've, I've managed to do that. It's, it's a wonderful experience uh, to, you know, to be, to be frankly without thought. But 
it's also worthwhile to uh, you know to communicate with your with your deity. You, you can personify him too. Crowley eventually realized that, but you know when he first got started in Theravada Buddhism, especially he he wanted to achieve the pure effect, and the pure effect is a totally calm mind and transcending the idea of thought. Anyway. This book is really beautiful, and even though we can be critical of Crowley for some of his failings and and what have you, you have to admit the man was a genius, and you have to admit that he was a remarkably creative artist and, in his own way, a philosopher. My main criticism of Crowley, personally, is that, unfortunately, and this is something Crowley admitted himself, he attracted the wrong kind of people, and a lot of the reason why he did was because of his actions and because of his promotion of his actions, his, his rebelliousness. If your entire your entire image is rebellion, then that's what you're going to create. That's what you're going to attract. You're going to attract people who want to rebel, and they're going to rebel against everything, including you. And this, of course, is kind of kind of really against the principles of Buddhism, because especially Tibetan Buddhism, the idea is liberation. And, of course, everybody has to rebel, and everybody should rebel. But after rebellion comes liberation. And that, that's one of the things that Crowley, he started off seeking liberation and ended up going right back into into creating. <laughs> one of the humorous things about this book, you know, is that he actually fulminates against creating religion, and yet he ends up doing it himself. He fulminates against the people who have uh, visions uh, and create religion, just like he with his Book of the Law. He he fulminates against it, and then he goes right out and does it. I think that this this book, Alistair Crowley in India, will give you a better picture of the inside of this man's mind and and a better idea of where he's at philosophically and everything else than any book on Crowley I've read yet. It certainly is more meaningful than Israel Regardi's Eye in the Triangle. I think it's a more significant read than that. And that just about wraps up what I have to, you know, to offer on this book. I really suggest if you're a Crowley fan or even if you're not and you want to appreciate Crowley, then Tobias Churton's Alistair Crowley in India is a book you want to get and read. That's all for this week, and uh, we'll be back next week with another uh, another show on hermetic magic and hermetic philosophy. And uh, until then, good magic. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.